I am very excited to have you on the podcast today. I feel like a lot of the questions that we get are related to skincare products. I know that when I was pregnant and trying to conceive, and now that I'm postpartum, I just I have all of these questions, and I feel like now we finally get to address them. So, Ajian, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about you and your specialty. Sure. So I'm Dr. Jean Chan. I am a dual board certified dermatologist and dermatopathologist, and I currently practice in Santa Barbara, but I'm also an adjunct professor at the Department of Derm at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. And my my focus is on medical dermatology, which includes common conditions like acne, rosacea, eczema, and skin cancer, but also includes more complex skin diseases like rashes associated with autoimmune disorders or with chemotherapy. And I have a special interest and expertise and skin of color and infectious diseases. So professionally, I've um, done research on the skin barrier and spoken at national meetings. So that's kind of my professional side of things. And I've recently started engaging online as a way to educate and disseminate more science-based thinking and an approach to skincare that's that goes beyond just the patients I see in my office. And it's been really rewarding. I think there's been a void in terms of that. And my ethos really is that you don't have to spend $500 on potions to have good skin. And that less is often more. I think there needs to be more people talking about how to be smarter about skincare rather than just consuming and and buying everything, hoping that it'll work. Lastly, I was just going to say probably what makes me the most qualified to talk about skincare and in everything maternity is that I'm now a mom to a seven-month-old baby girl. So I've recently gone through having to navigate my own skincare regimen through trying to conceive a pregnancy loss, being pregnant, and now breastfeeding. So I think it's been about two years. So definitely put a lot of thought into it. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So you have a seven-month-old. I'm sorry to hear that you had a loss as well, but it's nice to hear that you have a seven-month-old baby girl. So she was in July, I'm assuming. Yes. End of July. She popped out. Out. Yeah. Okay. My youngest is eight months, so or eight oh my and a half. Gosh. So we're we're on in, going through the same stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Right now, she's becoming, she's moving from blob to person, and it's just yes. been amazing. Yes, <laughs> it is funny. Like whenever you're talking to someone, you're like, no. I mean, like I remember, like when I was a first time parent, I was like, every like new stage was just this like really fun and exciting thing. And then you you have your second kid, you're like, oh, I know exactly when they get fun versus everything was fun when I was a first time parent. But now I'm like, oh, actually, yeah, they really are a blob. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, They're not giving back much. Exactly. (laughs) I remember the first time she smiled at us. It was at around two and a half months. Mm-hmm. And my husband and I freaked out. Like we both still remember so vividly how we felt. And now it just, yes. she's doing so much more. We're like, that impressed us. I know, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And then the laughs, like I feel like the giggles, oh. even my two and a half year old, like whenever she giggles, I still can't get enough of it. I'm yes. just like, oh, give me more. Yes. And my daughter, I will say she's very discerning. So she's mm. not one of those babies <laughs> that just is always giggling and laughing. Like you have to work for it. So it oh, means even it. more when she gives you the giggle. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Okay, I have a question yes. that is n- not related to pregnancy and postpartum, but okay. I you had posted about it the other day. And this has been like 
If you were to ask any of my friends, the conversation that I have the most of is about deodorant and natural deodorant because I have tried 65 different natural deodorants. They all don't work. I have to put them on like a hundred times. And maybe it's because I'm like postpartum and apparently your BO during postpartum (laughs) phase is worse. But I'm just like, what is happening and do I need to use a natural deodorant? (laughs) So – The short answer is no, you don't have to use a natural deodorant. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit and just talk about (laughs) how much fear-mongering there is around traditional deodorants and antiperspirants. And that's Mm -hmm. largely because of the fears that it could lead to Alzheimer's disease and breast cancer. But these fears are unfounded. And I think especially now in the age of the internet, anybody can have a professional looking website. So if they read something somewhere and then they can type it up on their website and it can look pretty legit and can scare a lot of people, but there's no evidence that the amount of aluminum absorbed from the daily use of antiperspirants, so clinical antiperspirants can lead to Alzheimer's or breast cancer, or can harm developing fetuses. And the FDA has approved the use of it in over-the-counter and prescription antiperspirants. There's actually one study that showed only 0.0012% of aluminum from antiperspirants is absorbed topically. And we actually get a lot more aluminum intake through our diet. If you take like Tums, like antacids, that also has aluminum and other metals in it. So really, that is a basis for this push towards natural deodorants. And natural deodorants typically use um, essential oils and baking soda to mask the odor. Mm -hmm. And if they're not working for you to combat your BO, you probably should be using an aluminum containing antiperspirant because that actually plugs up your sweat glands and prevents from that body odor from developing. So it's much more effective. And I've seen a lot of patients that have switched to natural deodorants that have come in with horrible rashes in their armpits because allergies to essential oils as well as the baking soda is really common. And you're talking about thin skin that's folded. So you have an occlusion of the skin there. So it ends up being a lot more sensitive to skin uh, than skin on other parts of our body. Natural is an option, but I don't think you necessarily have to do natural, especially if you find that it's not working for you. Okay. And is there something to like the fact that some of these natural deodorants actually have much fewer ingredients? Does that matter? I personally don't think that matters. There's, and this is a whole subject for another podcast, but the whole (laughs) clean beauty movement, this idea that if you can't pronounce it, if it's synthetic, it's bad for you. All of that is mostly unfounded. I think it's more of a personal preference, but I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with using a clinical antiperspirant. Got it. That's good to know. Yeah, you're totally right. That probably is an entirely new podcast mm-hmm. <laughs> because clean beauty is a total, a totally uh, it, like interesting subject. I think that, and not, I don't, I hate to use the word prey on, but like, especially in the postpartum pregnancy TTC phase, like mm-hmm. everyone's looking at what they're ingesting, what they're putting on their bodies, and mm-hmm. with a much much like bigger lens. And yeah, it's interesting. Let's get into topical skincare. Like what, like when we're thinking about, I guess, what's the easiest way? Do you want to talk about TTC pregnancy and nursing differently? Or can we just talk about what are the no-nos during pregnancy? So I'm just going to back up and just talk about how to even think about 
what you're putting on your skin during pregnancy as well as TTC and breastfeeding. Essentially, prescription medications were categorized by pregnancy category A, B, C, D. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That has switched over to a new sort of reporting model um, because that A, B, C, D X way of thinking about it was really overly simplistic, led to a lot of misinformation and fear and didn't really necessarily address the available information. So now the FDA has moved towards thinking about medications in general and pregnancy as a risk assessment. So instead okay. of, because the problem is there's not a lot of data, great prospective random randomly controlled trials done in pregnant women because it's unethical to right. test something that could potentially be harmful on a woman that's pregnant. So it's really tough to say definitively whether something is safe because it's been directly tested on humans. So a lot of the stuff is based on animal studies, which sometimes can translate, but doesn't necessarily. And then the other thing to keep in mind is that one, the dose makes the poison and that our skin is really good at keeping things out. There's a number that I've seen floating around the internet that 60% of what we put on our skin is absorbed in the skin, and that is just not true. Our skin, again, is made to keep things out. So in general, it's about 1% to 2%, but it depends on what you're applying, how big the molecule is, et cetera. But, and the other important thing to think about is that absorption does not necessarily equal harm. A lot of things are absorbed in our body and naturally excreted and just pass through without causing harm. And I think understanding these concepts can help you from falling into a lot of the fear mongering that goes on, especially within the maternally maternity internet world. With that in mind, in terms of pregnancy, obviously we don't want to be doing anything that you think may be harming the development of our fetus and all of the organs that are being put together, cells are moving around. You really don't want to disrupt that process. So the really big ingredient class that you definitely should avoid during pregnancy are any retinoid containing products. So that includes adapalene, which is known as different over the counter any retinols, retinoic acid, topical tretinoin, and tazerotene, um, also known as Tazerac. And this is because the oral form of retinoid, isotretinoin, which was formerly known as Accutane, is a known teratogen. So it leads to, we know it leads to cleft palates and cardiac defects. So it's a little bit controversial because there's no data showing that topical use over a limited area, so the face, there's mm -hmm. no evidence that has led to birth defects. But again, it hasn't been thoroughly studied for us to say definitively that it does not cause it. So most physicians and dermatologists, I think almost all, recommend that you avoid this class of product completely during pregnancy. But this does change during the breastfeeding phase because when you're breastfeeding, you're baby is now a fully formed human. So their organs are right. formed. So there's a different set of risks accompanying that. So it's really, you want to think about it as, does this go into my milk? And if it does go into my milk, does that harm my fetus? So when you're using a small amount of retinoid, especially just on your face, the absorption is really minimal. It's about 1%. So you know a tiny bit may go in your milk, but it's really negligible because again, we don't have that risk of malformations once your baby is out of your body. That that is actually considered safe in breastfeeding. Good to know. I have been avoiding my retinols, like my because because you're like I, I also want to take one step back. Mm -hmm. What would like I, my I have a friend who's a doctor, and her like number one skincare thing was always like you should be using a retinol mm -hmm. as soon as you're like over the age of twenty five. Yeah. And yeah, so, yeah, what are you using a retinol for? 
So retinol is amazing. So that is my number one superhero ingredient. Yeah. Basically, if you have acne, which you still get acne when you're out of your teen phase for most women. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it is the best, the best medication for acne. It also helps with chronic sun damage. So it helps remodel and regenerate sun damaged collagen. It helps with fine lines. It can help with pigmentation because it regulates how your skin cells divide. It helps with skin tone and texture. So it, it really is a multitasker. So if you're going to use one thing and especially when you're busy running around burping a baby, running after mm -hmm. a toddler, you really can't be doing 10 steps. Right. So if you're going to be doing one thing, that's the thing to be doing. Okay. Good to know. All right. So it is okay during pregnancy. And what about when Not you're Not okay to during pregnancy. Sorry. Sorry. Oh yes. my God. So it is okay when you're <laughs> breastfeeding, when you're breastfeeding. Yes. But when I was, when I was researching some posts, I was just Googling it. And a lot of websites say that it's not okay during breastfeeding because yeah. I think a lot of these outlets one, they may not have access to this, the published literature, and they may just be taking it off of what not to use during pregnancy and kind of just right. transposing that onto breastfeeding. And I just think that's really unfair because mm -hmm. you don't want to be so restricted and you don't need to necessarily be so restricted when you're breastfeeding. So there's actually a great resource called LactMed. It's through PubMed. So it just takes the published literature. And if you're searching even oral medications, you can search that and it tells you what data is out there. So you can make your own um, decision based on the risks that you see. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So that's a great resource. And if you, you know, Google tretinoin, it's considered safe in, in breastfeeding. And in terms of trying to conceive, that's a tricky spot, right? Because mm -hmm. you don't necessarily know you could be pregnant, you could not be. And so generally the recommendation is if you're going to plan your pregnancy, you just act as if you're pregnant. So I would follow the pregnancy guidelines while trying to conceive. However, if you have an unplanned pregnancy and you've been using your retinoid and then you find out you're pregnant, because we know that such a small amount is absorbed and in the early weeks, it's just cells rearranging. Palettes are not necessarily forming. The heart itself has not necessarily formed by that stage. So I mm -hmm. think the risk is minimal with topicals and you really um, don't need to panic too much. The same goes with alcohol. If you're trying to right. conceive, you technically shouldn't be drinking. If you get pregnant unknowingly and you've had some drinks, it's probably okay. Yeah. So that was me. Yeah. <laughs> In both cases. I was like, I remember like I was using my skincare and and then had a complete panic attack because I was like, oh my God, that's right. I'm not supposed to be using retinols and this has a retinol in it. And I right. probably spent six weeks just being super paranoid. And so anyone listening, this is, that's a good point. Don't absolutely lose your mind. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think I ate prosciutto ham my yeah. first trimester and I like had a panic attack did all this googling and then I was like it's fine it's yes, fine. Yes. but going back to what other things you should not be using so hydroquinone and derivatives like arbutin are also a no-go during pregnancy as well as breastfeeding because there's quite um, a high amount of systemic absorption just because of the size of the molecule and then generally, alpha hydroxy acids and beta hydroxy acids like sal acid, I would avoid higher percentages. Again, because there's no data to inform us, most dermatologists say stay under the 10% range in terms of the acids. And then with acne, it's really common to be taking antibiotics like doxycycline or minocycline or even um, things like spironolactone. So I know this is mostly about topical, but just stop those when you're trying to conceive and pregnant as well. 
Okay. And so pretty much anything oral, you're going to want to stop. I would talk to your doctor. There's some oral and systemic medications that people have to stay on. If you have an autoimmune Mm -hmm. disease, you need to do it for your health. So definitely talk to your doctor about that. If you're planning to conceive, there might be some that may be okay for you to stay on. Got it. Okay. And now, do you want to talk a little bit about pregnancy melasma? Because that's pretty common and like what we can do for that. Yes. So pregnancy melasma and just melasma in general is probably one of the most bothersome things to have. And the biggest, the best thing that you can do is just avoid the sun. Obviously we're in Southern California. It's really difficult, but Mm -hmm. trying to do outdoor activities early in the morning or later in the afternoon, using wide berm hats, wearing UPF clothing just for protecting your, your other parts of your body, and then really being consistent with sunscreen. So that just, that doesn't mean putting on a pea sized amount just in the morning. You should be using a thick layer. I usually recommend um, one to two finger lengths for the face and neck and reapplying every two hours. That's really the best thing that you can do if you already have melasma and it's pretty dark. In terms of treatment, again, you can't be using tretinoins. You can't be using our traditional skin bleaching agents like hydroquinone, but azelaic acid is a great multitasker product during pregnancy, TTC, and breastfeeding because it helps lighten the skin. It actually helps, it actually inhibits that pigmentation process. It actually works well for rosacea as well. So that you can use to your heart's content. And there's actually a lot more azelaic acid products available over the counter now, which is really nice. And alpha hydroxy acid products, um, again, at a lower percentage that can also help lighten the skin a bit. And then other agents like kojic acid, those are safe to use during pregnancy as well and can help with that hyperpigmentation. And does that go away after pregnancy? It can. A lot of pregnant women that have noticed it develop it first during pregnancy, it does tend to persist, may fade over the winter but usually comes back in the spring, summer. So it may be something you'll just have to learn to manage. It's like the linea nigra, that dark line that you get Mm -hmm. on on your belly, same thing. It'll fade over time. But for some women, it can be more persistent than others, especially if you have a darker skin tone. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. I remember like fully waiting for that to darken and mine never did with any of my pregnancies. And I was like, this is so strange. Like I just didn't have one at all, which was nice for me. But I was just like – I felt like that was like a guarantee with pregnancy. So I guess – it's the same thing. Yeah. It just just depends on how much pigmentation your body likes to make. And apparently yours doesn't, (laughs) which is lucky for you. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. Okay. What – I guess while you were talking about it, what – totally spaced. Oh yeah. So what's well, I'm <laughs> <get> sunscreen. <laughs> I was going to say pregnancy brain still is persistent. I was expecting oh. to be able to use my brain more effectively, but it's I, it's tough and I think the pandemic is really compounding that inability to form sentences. <laughs> yes. And, and it's funny like I when I was like start I'm like, "Oh my god, my like, like when you're in the beginning of like newborn phase and you're not sleeping, your your expectations are really low because you're just like, I'm not sleeping. But then when you're sleeping through the night, you're like, well, I have no excuse. And then you have one bad night and your brain for three days is fried. And yes. I'm in that phase right now. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> my theory is that all of my energy is taken up by this making breast milk factory on yes. my chest. So I oh feel like God. it's really drawing a lot of my nutrients and um, things I need for my brain to work. So. I agree with you and I will, I'm going to go with that too. Yeah. But what I was trying to go back with is sunscreen. So yes. while we were on the topic, what, how do you pick a good sunscreen for pregnancy or what should I be looking for or not looking for? So in pregnancy and in life, my ethos is that the best sunscreen is the one you will actually use. There aren't any, there's not very compelling data to say that women should 100% be avoiding um, those chemical sunscreens like oxybenzone. If you use the EWG and ascribe to more of this clean beauty movement, you may have this fear about it, but I find that it's really overgrown. There's that concern regarding endocrine disruption with those agents, right. but a lot of that concern is born out of animal studies where they were force feeding or administering really large amounts of oxybenzones to animals, which is not translatable to regular use in, in daily life. Again, back to this concept, our skin keeps out a lot of things and what's absorbed mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily lead to harm. So in 45 years of these agents being in use, there's really no evidence of harm in humans, um, including pregnant women actually to prepare. I, tried, I did a lot of digging and I couldn't find any really good studies that looked at it. There was recently an article saying that oxybenzone can cause something called Hirschsprung's disease, which is a developmental malformation of the colon. But I actually mm. pulled that article that came from, there's actually like a Parents Magazine article about it that was really scary. If I yeah. were a lay person, I read that, I would say I'm going to avoid this completely. But I pulled the article and it actually just used in vitro studies and calculations. And there wasn't mm -hmm. actually human data to show that oxybenzone causes that. So that said, and I take the Emily Oster approach to yeah. risk assessment, <laughs> right? Like you can say, I don't want to expose myself to that risk at all, which is fine. I think that's a personal right. decision. But I think to say that you absolutely should not be using this or exposing yourself to it based on data that's not necessarily compelling, I think is misleading and is a form of fear mongering. We all have to live our lives and there's a really high risk you could die in a car accident. Does that mean we don't drive? No. So you have to balance that risk for yourself. So that's my approach is to really present the data and allow people to make that decision for themselves. So that's a segue, but I think that's important when you think about a lot of this stuff. Yes. No, I it's it's funny. I I love that approach too. And I I also what I love about doctors is that they can like you you can assess data and look at what like in a different way than your normal person. Mm -hmm. And every doctor that I've had on, no, this is what if I were to have read that, this is what it would a normal person would have assessed and that's just that here's why it's wrong. And I think it's so easy for somebody that's a writer, you want to have that clickbaity title. You yes. want people to read your article. So you're going to write the thing that's going to attract the most attention. When you actually step, take a step back, science is complicated and we don't know everything. And I think that's the tough part because everybody wants absolutes, but yep. we just don't have that. So that said, a lot of people tend to choose more mineral-based sunscreens um, like zinc oxide and titanium dioxide base, but that may not work for some people, especially women with darker skin tones. Those types of sunscreens leave a really awful white cast, and it's mm -hmm. just not something you're going to want to use on a daily basis. So we 
know that UV exposure causes skin cancer and all of these other alterations in the skin. We definitely know that. So right. for me, from my perspective, it's just important to be using a sunscreen that you will actually use on a daily basis. Yes. Yes. That's, it's funny. Like we, when I, wherever I get like questions about nutrition and whatnot, mm-hmm. I'm like, look, like, or fitness or how do you work out? I'm like, if you're trying to do something or eat something that you don't like or that you don't enjoy, you're never going to do it. And so mm-hmm. like finding healthy recipes that you like and modifying, that's the most important way to be making the healthy decisions and to do an exercise that you enjoy doing. Otherwise, you're just never going to do it. Like you're just, it's, you're going to do it two days in a row and then you're going to be like, this isn't fun and I don't want to do it. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And I, and like that, this whole culture of fear mongering really extends into the diet world as well and the food world. Oh yeah. yeah. I was not to get too far off topic, but I was just, my husband and I just watched Game Changers Mm -hmm. and I was just like, like I, what I don't like about that movie is that there were, they it felt like there was some cherry picking of data going mm-hmm. on, but then what I also what also was just frustrating and I was as I was like oh my god this extends to the world of politics where it's like if you just read one side of things then you're very much like going to view something in a very specific way mm-hmm. and it feels like nutrition is the same way where you're like oh if I follow a keto diet like I can follow all these people and learn all about these I'm looking for a very specific set of data mm-hmm. and I can find it. The same can be said either way. Whereas had game changers just taken the approach of eat more vegetables, period. Mm-hmm. That's like a much more inclusive and like there's no like literally everything points to the fact that if we can eat more vegetables, that's a great thing. But yeah, I it's it's infuriating. Yeah. And it's one um, of those things where there's enough things for us to actually be stressed and worried about. This culture of fear mongering unnecessarily, I think it just adds to stress and anxiety. And you and Jen Swartz were talking about this like postpartum anxiety that's so real. I don't think that really skincare and what you're putting on your skin necessarily should take up as much brain space as things that actually will significantly affect the health and well-being of you and your child. And I think it's important to have that perspective. Yes, totally. I want to talk a little bit specifically for breastfeeding moms. And I'm asking for a friend. I'm just kidding. But I I know that for like what – like I'm, I'm th- I don't know how old I am. Oh my God, 37. <laughs> but what I looked like four years, no, I'm 36, whatever. I think I'm turning 37 this year. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's my husband more. is one year older than me. And every year I get a year back of my life because I think I'm turning his age right. and then I'm not. And I'm like, oh my God, that's right. <laughs> Amazing. What like, I looked, you know, like my skin has taken, it, it's taken its toll like over the last five years. And I feel mm-hmm. like, I, and maybe it's true for you too, but I feel like I am, I drink 140 ounces of water a day, but my face just looks like it's not nur- like <laughs> it's not nourished. <laughs> and I think it's because I'm breastfeeding. Like it like it, it, it yeah, I think it's because I'm breastfeeding. So all that to say, there's all this whole preamble. What anti-aging products are safe to use? <laughs> so asking for a friend. Yeah, I'm the same yeah. way. I'm like looking at my face. I'm like, it's so gone. So one, I think yes. you're probably losing a lot of weight. So what makes your face look youthful is fat. So if you're losing fat and losing weight, that's going to affect how you're, and you're losing volume in your face, that's going to affect your youthfulness. I also think there's a fluid issue. But again, if you are adequately um, hydrated, it shouldn't make that much of a difference on your skin. I think loss of sleep also affects that. But in terms of products, I would definitely get back on your retinoid. I would 
I like doing an alpha hydroxy peel about a 10% one to two times a week. And I really think that just is a nice chemical exfoliant. It removes that kind of top layer of dead skin that contributes to that dull effect. So you can get a little bit of that glow back by doing a chemical exfoliant once or two times a week. I think that really helps. Honestly, as we get into our 30s, I think that those fine lines turn into kind of lines that stay there. And that really contributes to how Mm -hmm. we appear overall. Once you're not breastfeeding, I would say Botox would probably give you the biggest bang for your buck. Yeah, but skincare products, yeah, retinoids, um, alpha hydroxy acids. Some people really like their vitamin C products. They find that it really helps brighten their complexion a bit. So adding something like that, niacinamide is also an antioxidant um, that also boosts the skin barrier that can help. Hydrating products like hyaluronic acid containing products can also give you that little extra hydration boost. Yeah. So those are all products that that can help. Okay. Now, I don't want to gloss over it. I want to go back. Let's mm-hmm. talk about Botox. <laughs> so it's funny because I, I think that Botox has a a bad rap in that it feels like it's what all the celebrities do. And then okay. I, like dove into a little bit and I was like, oh – so normal people are doing this like pre- to, to like to prevent line. Can we just talk about Botox a little bit? Like what is it? What does it do? And when should you start it if you can? And what, yeah, what is the expectation there? Sure. So basically Botox is a synthetic version of botulinum toxin. So what that does, it actually blocks the nerve sing- signal that goes to your muscle to move it. So essentially it causes paralysis, um, mm-hmm. which is why we don't give honey to our babies because you don't want to give them botulism. When it's injected locally to the muscle, very little of it is systemically absorbed. So it stays mostly in the muscle. And so essentially what you're doing is you are paralyzing those muscles that lead to the lines that make you look a little bit more aged. So Generally, that is the mid forehead. So between the eyebrows, we call that the glabella, the forehead, and then the crow's feet. Those are the Mm -hmm. most common areas that people use Botox, although you can use in other areas. And what people don't realize is that those lines over time, it's like when you crumple up a piece of paper and you try to flatten it out again, you can still see where it was crumpled. So over time, your skin, where your muscle is moving a lot, will have fixed lines. So I would say if you're starting to notice lines on your forehead, even when you're not expressing yourself, those are called fixed movement lines, Mm -hmm. then I would start considering using Botox. And then when you paralyze that muscle underneath, you prevent that line from getting worse. Some people do start a little bit earlier, and we have data that shows that you can prevent lines from forming. Again, following that same concept. If you're not crumpling crumpling up the paper, it's going to stay smooth longer. Again, financially, that's not feasible for a lot of people, so it's balancing that. If you're starting to see those lines, that's probably a good time to use it. It's a really safe treatment. It's temporary. So after about, it depends on, it, it really depends on how fast your body metabolizes it, but around three to four months is, is how long it lasts. You do it and you don't like it, you're just going to go back to where you were before you did it because that protein does degrade completely. There are very few side effects. Again, if you have an experienced injector that's really familiar with the anatomy, the side effects are really low. The most severe side effect is an eye droop. Again, but that resolves as the protein gets degraded. And what was I going to say? And what 
really surprises people is how effective it is. Because you don't realize when you're looking at someone's face how those lines contribute to looking older. So when mm-hmm. people do get their Botox, and again, you don't have to be completely frozen. You can still retain some movement, but it'll just smooth out your complexion so that when you do express yourself, you those lines won't be as deep. And a lot of people come back and say, people are asking me what I've done to my skin. And I've done nothing to my skin. I've just gotten Botox. So I like to give the analogy that it looks like you just came back from two weeks in Hawaii. You have more (laughs) of a refreshed look. If somebody's injecting you in the correct way, you're not going to look completely frozen. You're going to still be able to emote. So I think there is a lot of stigma because of the people that have overdone it. And my ethos is if someone can tell that you've gotten something done, then your injector didn't do a good job. Okay. That's a good tip. And this is not something that you can do when you're pregnant. Definitely not. And there's really no data in breastfeeding as well. So the concern is obviously that the botulism, the the toxin that you are injecting will go into your breast milk and lead to botulism in your infant, which is obviously um, can be deadly. Right. And so some practitioners will perform Botox on breastfeeding moms and recommend pump and dumping for a few days, but there's mm-hmm. no data to support any certain time window. But that's a discussion you should have with your dermatologist, whoever does your injections, because we just don't have data to, to guide us in that. So I would say steer clear of it until you're completely done. Now, just a question, because the baby, ba- I guess babies before, it's the honey thing is ba- until they're one and then you can, mm-hmm. so with mm-hmm. that, if I'm still breastfeeding my baby at 18 months, <laughs> is this an option for me or is uh, you it know, still the same I, risk? I think the risk is very small, okay. but there is a risk. And so I say, just talk to your practitioner, the person mm-hmm. that would be doing your treatment. Some people are, are willing to do it. So again, it's Got that it. risk benefit. Yeah. And from personal experience, I think the risk is pretty small. I think to be safe, you could probably pump and dump for a few weeks. But again, there's no data to guide that. It's really dependent on the comfort level of the person who's doing your treatment and and yourself. Okay. Got it. Good to know. I mm-hmm. We had gotten – when I, I had pulled our audience, we had gotten a bunch of questions about Botox. So I want to make sure I'm trying to cover it all. Yes. Eyelash serums, are these okay while breastfeeding or pregnant? So the non-medication, so Latisse is the eyelash serum that is the most effective. Um, It has a medication called bimatoprost in it. Not safe during pregnancy. There's no data in breastfeeding, but the drug does have a short half-life. And if you're really applying it to just your eyelid lash line, there's likely really minimal absorption systemically and unlikely to adversely affect the infant. So probably safe in breastfeeding, not in pregnancy. And then the other eyelash serums, they typically have things like prostaglandin, biotin, and arginine, and these are safe in both pregnancy and breastfeeding. Okay. Yep. In both pregnancy too. Okay. Mm -hmm. Cool. But I would definitely um, look at the packaging and see because I think there's there can be a variation in what's in it. So just now I'm sure curious, do you do you get a lot of like texts or messages or whatever from your pregnant patients and with a screenshot of or a picture of the back of the ingredient list being like, is this okay? <laughs> is that something or no? I do not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I won't rule it out for the future. But luckily there's a lot of 
really good. We have access to the internet. So I think Googling can help. And the Lactmed database I really like for breastfeeding because it just outlines everything. That's that's easy. Now, a new popular thing is skincare with CBD in it. So what's the verdict on that? The verdict is we don't know enough. So Mm. the FDA has a really strongly worded statement. So if you are pregnant, trying to conceive, or breastfeeding to avoid CBD as well as THC-containing products completely. So in terms of topical products, again, we don't really know how much gets absorbed when you're using it. And the industry is not highly regulated. You don't, it's hard to say what's exactly going on in your skin. CBD has been known to cause liver toxicity as well as drowsiness and can be contaminated with THC as well. So those are things to think about. We know because of it's a lipophilic molecule, it's likely excreted in the breast milk as well. So the FDA says to avoid it completely until we know more. Good to know. Another question that we got, I'm assuming this is for people in the Northeast. (laughs) What about mosquito repellent? (laughs) So this actually came up a lot during the Zika period. Yes. You remember that before we were in a global pandemic? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It's funny that you, I'm just going to interrupt you. We had in our app, it was like when we talked about doing a a baby moon, we brought up Zika and then the pandemic happened. I'm like, oh, I got to update this too. You're probably not traveling. But I remember my first, when I was pregnant with the first time we were mm-hmm. considering going places. And I was like, oh, gotta gotta find a Zika-free place. Hawaii, so, which is yeah. it's just Hawaii for us. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So basically there is a lot of question about this. So the data shows that insect repellents containing DEET up to a 30% concentration and picaridin up to 20%, as well as clothing treated with permethrin are all considered safe in pregnancy. There was actually a study, a double-blind uh, trial of 900 women that found that when you applied DEET regularly in the second and third trimesters, it could cross the placenta, but didn't have any adverse effects on the baby's survival, growth development, um, and development at one years old. They consider it safe, and there's reassurance that even in the first trimester, if you use it, it's considered safe. There's a lot of data around it. Yes. Yes. So my last question, and I know I'm just curious, what are the skincare products that you or brands that you use? So what, like we're in this phase of your life right now, because I think it's all like now I know what ingredients not to look for, but it's like, make if you can make this easy for me, what is, what are you using on your face right now? It's funny. I actually did a reel a while back where I was showing my regimen, but then I had my baby and her little bouncer just staring mm-hmm. up at me. I'm like, this is mom's life. You have about 60 <laughs> seconds before the baby starts <laughs> screaming and you have to pick it up. I keep it really simple. I have the same regimen that I've had for years. So my staple um, is Cetaphil moisturizing cream. So you know that giant jar? I get it yes. from Costco. It lasts me about now about three, four months. But I use that on face and body morning and night. I think especially now we're in winter. And I think when you're breastfeeding, your skin tends to be a little bit drier. Mm-hmm. So I find oh that God, to be yes. a really nice moisturizer that's not greasy, but still traps in moisture. So for morning, I use either a salicylic acid face wash. I just use the Neutrogena one that helps with acne. 
And in the morning, I use it as like acid product. So I really like the Ordinary. They have a 10% one. Paula's Choice also has one that's pretty popular. And then Amazon has a new line that also has an as like acid product. And then it's also available by prescription as well. If you're finding that those over-the-counter ones are not effective for you. Again, that works well for acne, helps with hyperpigmentation, and just helps generally smooth out your skin a little bit. So I really like that. And then I do the Cetaphil. And then for sunscreen, I like the Elta MD sunscreen. It's just really elegant. It's something that I feel like I can put on my skin. Doesn't smell like sunscreen. Is not greasy. Super Goop is also another sunscreen line that people really like. I like their unseen sunscreen as well. But to multitask, especially if I'm trying to look nicer, NARS has a really wonderful tinted moisturizer, tinted moisturizer with sunscreen. So I really like that because that's just one step and you don't have to think about it. And then at night, I do pretty much the same thing, but I swap out as like acid for now I'm using a retinoid at night and then a couple times a week I'll use the pixie glow pads those are about twenty dollars you can order them I think from Target it's a 20% glycolic acid pad and I just swipe that on leave it on for about 10 minutes while I'm pumping and then rinse it off and pretty much it but recently I've found that the biosense and they've sent me some products and as a disclaimer, but their squalane, uh, squalane line is really nice. They have a nice oil cleanser that's really great at taking off makeup, especially if you don't want to do multiple steps. It's a hassle trying to even get out a cotton pad to take off your yeah. eye makeup. <laughs> so that's yeah. really nice and moisturizing. So those are my two cents, but really skincare is about preference. Um, and that's what I talk about a lot. And that's why I don't really talk about brands that much because mm-hmm. you have to figure out what works for you. But those are, are brands that I think are a affordable, cost-effective, and have really nice products. And The Ordinary actually has a nice 5% lactic acid product that's great during pregnancy. And I use that a couple times a week as my acid. Okay. Okay. And you said you recommend doing an acid twice a week? One to two times a week, depending on your tolerance. But I think it's a really nice way to just get a little extra glow in your skin. Got it. And what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing from the kind of brands that you're using is that we don't need to be buying like a $200 moisturizer. Definitely not. I think it's important to be mindful about what you're spending your money on in general, but especially with Mm -hmm. skincare. It's so easy if you walk into Sephora to walk out with $150 worth of skincare products. And the important thing to keep in mind, if something is sold as an over-the-counter cosmetic, so most skincare products are, they're legally not allowed to change the structure of your skin. So if they're telling you that they'll give you an eye lift or it'll make you look 10 years younger, that is a claim that they really shouldn't be making. I usually say, I think I probably spend about maybe 50 or $60 a year on skincare products. And then the rest, microneedling is a great treatment. You know, that's really great for resurfacing, lasers, Botox, balancing that at-home regimen. And then doing more in-office procedures that will give you more dramatic results rather than spending $300 on a serum. That is just a really nice moisturizer. (laughs) Exactly. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, Oh my God, that's fantastic advice. I feel like I'm going to rethink my facial regimen. Those are the questions that I had for you. I so appreciate your time and all of your knowledge. I feel like this is, I could listen to this podcast three times and take something new away from it every time. It was such a pleasure. Oh, you know what? The question that we did miss was about self-tanner. And I specifically looked it up because you asked me. (laughs) 
Yes. Oh, so, sorry. Thank you. No, you're welcome. So dihydroxyacetone is the active ingredient in self-tanner. It attaches to our skin cells in the outer layer of our skin, the stratum corneum, and has a chemical reaction that gives us that tanning look. Products that contain it with concentrations of 1% to 15%. If you're putting it on your skin, very little is absorbed systemically, less than 1%. So the consensus is that it is safe during pregnancy and then um, probably in breastfeeding as well. So okay, self tan away. It's safer than um, going out in the sun and tanning. Yes. Oh my god. I it's, I feel like in in California, it's so hard to avoid the sun. It's really um, hard. Yeah, my my daughter ha- had a weird. She like kept having. She's I mean she still has them, but the oh my god the the co- the cafe au lait spots. Mm-hmm. And I took her to the dermatologist, and he's well, it's just really you have to keep her out of the sun between the hours of ten and four. And I'm mm-hmm. like, <laughs> <laughs> You're that's like, that so the whole the day literally <laughs> impossible. Exactly. But the great thing is now there's a ton of UPF rated clothing for kids. So that's yes. what I usually tell my moms that come in with their kids. Especially especially kids that are more fair, little redheads. That's mine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My husband's a redhead, so I know the struggle. Yeah. So how can you chase around a toddler and try to reapply sunscreen? It's impossible. (laughs) So I think having long sleeve, sun protective clothing, wide brim hats are a really good tool to help them. And one of my friends who's a dermatologist who also has littles, she really likes the Neutrogena stick sunscreen for kids. Mm-hmm. And it goes on, I think it goes on pink. And then when you rub it in, it it becomes invisible, but you can let your toddler put it on themselves. And then when they come to you, you can see the spots they've missed. So I think yes. that's a nice way to do it as a game with your toddler, practicing yes. sun protection. My toddler is obsessed with sunscreen <laughs> and she will not let you take – like she she puts it on herself and then she I, – I should actually – when I when this airs, I should post some pictures of my daughter putting the sunscreen on her face and my son putting the sunscreen on his face because it is horrifying. We Every time we would go to the pool, that we'd go through an entire stick of um, sunscreen. So it's That's a amazing. very expensive habit. Yes. I, and I will say, I'm not sure, but have you heard of Lark Adventure Wear? No, I have not. I'll send you there. It's one of my friends from business school. We went to UCLA here together and she started this clothing brand and it's UPF protecting. It is literally my favorite clothing brand ever, but I never am concerned because because I just have my kids in Lark all the time. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this is at least like the like silver lining of of sun protection here. Yes. (laughs) Yes. It's better than what we had 20 years ago. My husband who's a redhead who grew up in Santa Barbara, he regrets (laughs) All the time he spent out in the sun. And I too, I grew up in Westlake and spent my afternoons at Zuma Beach. Before I became a dermatologist, I definitely damaged my skin more than I would have liked to. So UPF clothing is amazing. And I'm also a Bruin. Go Bruin. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate your time. And this was wonderful. Yes, it was wonderful. It was really nice um, chatting with you. 